Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Dana Norris. There's a lot of gear down there. It's like ground beef. I didn't even look. I didn't want to. I'm seeing... Whoa, that's how we all got here. Um, So... That and more, but before that, I want to give a little shout out to our newest Patreon patron, Deanna Hodson. She is giving us $25 or more per month whenever someone does that. We give them a little shout out on the show. Also, I should let you know, bonus story number 22 is being uploaded onto the Patreon today. That's about seven episodes at this point. We record more stories than we're able to put out once a week on the show here, so bonus stories go onto the Patreon and and you know, people who join our Patreon get that bonus content. They get weekly check-ins from me. There's videos and photos and prizes and stuff like that. There's so much to find at our Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash risk and become a member, help keep us running here. And thank you so much again to Deanna Hodson. Also, these days you can get practically everything on demand, like this podcast you can listen whenever you want so why are you still taking trips to the post office when you can get postage on demand with stamps.com with stamps.com you can access all the amazing services of the post office right from your desk 24 7 when it's convenient for you you can buy and print official u.s postage for any letter any package using your own computer and printer then the mail carrier picks it up just click print mail and you're done couldn't be easier. We've used stamps.com, I think, for six years now at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you can use Risk for this special offer. It includes up to $55 free postage, plus a digital scale, and a four-week trial. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Risk. That's stamps.com enter risk now here's the show
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Charles McBride behind me now. Wait, wait, Christian McBride. What? I mean the Christian McBride big band. And we're calling this week's episode uh, Live from Pittsburgh 2. It's actually our third time there, but one time all the equipment went weird. I always think of the movie The Deer Hunter when I think of Pittsburgh, but actually this time around when we visited the city, someone told me those deer hunting scenes in that movie were shot in Oregon. Speaking of Oregon, guys, the Risk book is coming out in July. Holy shit. It is so important that we get as many pre-orders as we can before that July release date so that the book makes a splash when it comes out. JC's mom is reading the book and she read a kinky story of mine in it and decided that I am disgusting. So am I? You be the judge by pre-ordering the book and then emailing me at kevin at show.com to prove that you did and then I'll sing your name on the show in the Easter egg at the end and everyone is gonna be fine. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the super talented young comedian Ian McIntosh, who is uh, based in Pittsburgh. You can find him on Twitter at iMacComedy. But before that, we're going to hear from Dana Norris, who has a show of her own in Cleveland. You can find that at StoryClubCleveland.com, or you can find Dana at DanaNorris.net. Here's Dana now with a story we call The Fog. So I am an overachiever. I am textbook, oldest child, straight A student, type A personality, control freak, making it weird for everyone, always doing the absolute most. So um, when I got pregnant with my first child, I thought, finally, something else to excel at. And I'm going to be pregnant. I'm going to do as hard as I fucking can. Um, So it got real intense, started doing a lot of research because what is the best way to have a baby? There's all these ways. One must be best. Which one is it? I will do that one. So um, I did all this research and said, ah, natural childbirth. Yes, of course. No pain medication. That's for quitters. Why would you do that? No, I will have a natural childbirth. And of course, I will only breastfeed my child, exclusively breastfeeding EBF is what they call it. It's the thing. Um, so I will do that. And I had this image of I would go to the hospital and be in labor and in intense pain, but I would like meditate my way through it. And in that meditation, I would like go down into a cave with like every woman ever. And we would just like braid each other's hair and be like men, like they could fucking never, right? And like that's how I would like ride it out. 
And then, you know, after I had the baby, I'd go home and just like throw him on a tit, just like bam, right there, like hands free. He'd just hang there. And I would finally have time to like write my book. Like that's what I was gonna do during my maternity leave. And those of you who have had children are the ones laughing the loudest right now. Um, So that was the plan. And I discovered a natural childbirth class that I could take and it was um, called the Bradley Method. It is founded by a man, which should be a fucking flag. Um, That is a flag on the ground right there because you don't know what you're talking about. But um, Dr. Bradley had noticed that when cows give birth, they're really chill about it. They just don't like moo a lot. Um, And literally, literally, look it up. Um, And so he thought, hey, if we could just get ladies to like be like cows, it wouldn't hurt them. Um, And that is the basis of this childbirth method that I went to a 12-week class for with my husband god love him he came with and it was taught by a woman named joy because fucking of course it was and it was in her basement and her three children were also in the basement the whole time which and her three children were in their 20s so that should have been another flag but let's go for it and so in this childbirth class, they taught us like epidurals are evil. They're going to turn your baby blue. And like, really, you shouldn't go to the hospital because they want to do interventions. We should all give birth in a creek the way God intended. And, you know, you want to exclusively breastfeed your child because formula, it's just like if you even just let a drop of it touch the corner of their mouth, it's just, it's stupid juice. It ruins their lives. Like no one's ever been a doctor who was formula fed ever, never. So you can't do it. And I was like, yes, tell me more. Um, so cut to... I am 41 and a half weeks pregnant, um, which is really fucking pregnant. (laughs) You're only supposed to go to 40 weeks. Um, So I go to see my midwives because, of course, I had midwives. Of course, I did. And they take a look at me and they're like, okay, so um, we're going to need you to go over to the hospital right now because we are going to induce you today. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm having a natural childbirth. Like, no, you can't induce me. That's an intervention. And Dr. Bradley said I shouldn't do that. And they're like, yeah, so it's like a Benjamin Button situation in your uterus right now. Um, so the good news is, is uh, today's your baby's birthday and tomorrow you won't be pregnant. Get the fuck to the hospital. So, eh. So I went, I had no choice. And, you know, I got there and I started, you know, they gave me Pitocin, which makes contractions happen. And it started with the pain. And the thing is, like, we have a pain scale, right? We all have a pain scale, like one to 10. And the thing about labor is it just resets it by just throwing zeros on the end of it. So it's like one to 10, one to 100, one to 1,000, one to 10 million. It was like, I've never had an experience like that in my life because it's like there's pain and then there's, I was happy to learn I'm not a screamer. I'm not a screamer. I'm not like the women in the sitcoms, like, oh, I hate you, because I didn't have the energy, because I was so enwrapped in pain, I couldn't see or think or hear, and I was curled into a tight ball, and I knew I was supposed to relax. I just couldn't, and after doing that for a couple of hours, I was like, you know what? I'm not a cow. Bring me the epidural. Bring it. Bring it here, and they did, and guys, (laughs) highly recommend it. I wish I had one right now. It was so good. Um, because it's like the worst pain of your life that like obliterates all your senses to like a pleasant tickling sensation and then you take a nap. Um, so it's really good stuff. Um, so we did that. And then at 5.55 a.m. on Thursday, December 19th, 
my son was born and my world just contracted and then exploded in this blast of light that still dazzles me because like he was part of me and then it was head shoulders knees toes he's out he's in the world he's a person I can hold him and look at him and my husband and I were just in a hallucinatory state of happiness just sobbing because it was the best moment of my life and we spent the next couple days in the hospital and it was like we weren't sleeping very much but we didn't care it's like when you're up all night with a new lover like you don't care if you sleep because you just don't want to miss that face like just show me that face more um and there was one night in the hospital this was in downtown chicago and the hospital had these floor-to-ceiling windows and it was the middle of the night and my son made a noise and i woke up and my husband was asleep and my son was asleep and i could look out the windows and see all these buildings in downtown and a little patch of lake michigan and off the lake there was this big white fog rolling into the city and I laid in my bed and I watched it as it came in and it took on this really dusky golden glow from the reflected light of the city all around it and it just obscured the buildings around us one at a time until they were all gone. And then it was just me in this hospital room with my small family and I felt enveloped and protected and safe. And then they make you leave the hospital. Um, they're like, hey, you're riding a maxi pad the size of a surfboard and you're wearing mesh underwear because no other underwear could possibly keep that on your body. It's like impossible. Plus there's like an ice pack situation. There's a lot of gear down there. It's like ground beef. I didn't even look, I didn't want to. I'm serious, oh, that's how we all got here. Um, so. <laughs> Real talk. Um, so, and then they're like, just take this newborn baby that's only been alive for two days and just take him on the fucking highway. Get out of here. And you're like, that seems like it should be illegal. Um, but you do, you take him home. And in the hospital, he had latched great. He was breastfeeding like a champ. And as soon as we got him home, he stopped. He just stopped breastfeeding. He wouldn't latch anymore. And I'm trying to exclusively breastfeed. My mom's there. She's like, I'll just get some formula. I'm like, not that devil juice in my house. No. I'm gonna breastfeed this motherfucker. Um, so like I'm holding him, I'm trying to be calm. I'm like, take the nipple, take the nipple. He's crying, he's so hungry. I'm like, take the nipple, take the tit, take the tit, take the tit, take the tit. Um, and yelling that at a newborn is not helpful. <laughs> they don't respond well to threats like that. Um, so uh, what we did was we called a lactation consultant, a lovely woman that will come to your house for the low, low price of $200 an hour and stare at your tits and go, ah, you have flat nipples. <laughs> He can't get them in his mouth. And I'm like, never been a problem before. Um, <laughs> sure, okay. So she's like, here is what we are going to do. I'm gonna give you nipple shields. They look like little like clear titty sombreros and they have like holes in them. I'm serious. You put them on, okay? It elongates the nipple. He can get in his mouth, he can feed. Problem is it's gonna cover up half of your milk duct so it's gonna suppress your milk supply. So this is what we're gonna do. Every day you're gonna drink mother's milk tea four times a day. You're gonna make these mother's oatmeal cookies. You're gonna drink a dark porter beer. You're gonna take fenugreek. It'll make you smell like maple syrup all the time. No one fucking cares. This is what we're doing, okay? <laughs> 
Then you are going to feed him eight times a day, 20 minutes per boob, okay? Great. Then after you do that, you're going to give him a bottle of breast milk to make sure he has enough to eat because babies are born, they lose weight right away. You got to get him back up to the birth weight within two weeks or else everyone dies. I'm not sure, but the pediatrician was so intense about it that I was like, okay. Um, so we got to make sure he gets enough to eat and he gets back up to his birth weight. And then you're going to attach yourself to a hospital grade breast pump and you're going to pump your tits for 40 minutes and you're going to do this eight times a day, once every three hours, and the entire feeding schedule takes about two hours. So that leaves you with one hour to eat, sleep, shower, mostly cry, mostly it was cry, um, before the whole thing starts again. And those of you who can do math know eight times three is 24 fucking hours. Um, So it's every hour of the day. Let's go. And so that's what we do. And then um, my mom has to go back home and my husband has to go to work. And it's winter in Chicago and I'm just home alone with this baby just feeding him all day and then pumping my tits all day. And I'm like, apologies to Dr. Bradley. I am a cow. I am so sorry that I said those things because apparently this is what I do. I just make milk now. Um, That's all I do. And so... uh, the thing is, after about a month of this, it's like you cannot sleep for a while before it starts to be like, you know the walls are moving when you aren't looking at them. Like, you just fucking know. And suddenly you can, like, smell colors. Like, someone comes in with a red shirt, and you're like, I can't with that smell. You have to go. You have to. And people are like, hey, can we come over? And I'm like, I don't know. Do you want to watch me sob while my nipples are sucked into plastic tubes? Because that's what you just asked me. No, you can't come over. Um... <laughs> Absolutely not. And so it's like, it's happening and it's like, I'm just feeling just like sinking deeper and deeper in every day, like, okay, okay, okay. And then there's this one day, it's a normal day, about a month in, and um, it's the middle of the day. I've just, you know, I fed my kid four of the eight times that day and I put him down to sleep and I put him in his crib and then I go to my room and I crawl into my bed and I'm like, okay, maybe this will be a good nap. Maybe I can get a solid hour or two hours in, maybe, maybe, just hoping before he starts screaming again. And I close my eyes and I start to drift off to sleep and he starts screaming again and I'm like, okay. So I go and I get him, probably his diaper is wet or something, but it's not, it's dry. And I'm like, oh, he's hungry, but it's not, he just ate. And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe you just need affection. So do I. Like, why, why do you get it? Just because you're yelling. Um, so I take him and I'm carrying him and I'm trying to calm him down and he just keeps screaming more and more. And suddenly I realize, you know, if he was underwater, I wouldn't hear him. And I can, I can see it. I can see that there is, in my cabinet, there's a white ceramic bowl. I could get the bowl. I could get the bowl, and I could go to the kitchen, and I could fill the bowl up with water, and I could put the water bowl on the counter, and I could take his head and just put it in the water, and he would then be silent and quiet just for, just for a moment. And I take my son. I'm holding him. And I I run, and I run into his room, and I throw him into his crib, and then I leave the room, and I slam the door. And he lies in his crib and screams, and I sit on the floor outside of his room, and I scream, because I'm a bad mom, and I have never failed at something this much before in my entire life. I'm an overachiever. I, I, I... make goals and I do them and I can't do this and I know I'm going to have to do it tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and I don't think I can do it for another hour that night my husband comes home from work and I look at him 
for just a second too long with like really big crazy eyes. And he's like, hey, what's, what's going on? And I'm like, um, and I want to tell him. I just want to tell him everything about just how bad it has gotten for me, but I'm afraid because I don't want him to fear me or pity me or like divorce me or something. Um, but I just say, I got to tell him, like, I just, I have to. And I say, you know, sometimes when the baby won't stop crying, I think about, I think about putting his head in water. <laughs> and my husband hugs me, which is great because it doesn't mean immediate divorce. Like, he's going to file the paperwork first or something. Like, I got time. Um, and then he lets me go and he holds my shoulders and he looks me in the eye and he says, oh, honey, me too. I think about that kind of stuff too. And I'm like, you fucking monster. You think about killing our child? And then I'm like, no, no, wait, I, I'm in no position to judge. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that was knee jerk. Um, I'm just like, fucking what? Like, wh- I'm not alone, what? And so we like pinky swear that we're not gonna murder the baby, like just like promise. Like, ugh, it would be such an awkward Facebook status. Like just, mm. um, and then, I have my six-week checkup with my midwife, and at that checkup, she diagnoses me with postpartum depression and prescribes me antidepressants, and I am insulted. I am like, no, I am not depressed. I'm just living an unending hellscape, okay? Like, I'm not depressed. And she's like, you filled out this depression questionnaire, and according to this, you're depressed like as fuck. And I'm like, no, I'm not. She's like, you said you think about dying. Like, how often you think about dying? And I was like, yeah, the normal amount, frequently. So when the fog came in, it obscured everything. Just everything around me was suddenly gone except for me and the baby. And it took me six weeks to remember that there's shit behind the fog. There's buildings and in the buildings are people and other people have done this and probably other people have felt this way. So I start asking other people. I just reach out to other moms I know, just asking questions like, hey girl, antidepressants, they gave them to me. Like, should I take them? Or like, hey, so when does breastfeeding get better? Like, what's the exact fucking date? And um, like, hey, so did you ever think about like just low-key murdering your child or um, and like also just more importantly how did you do this how and they all answer me immediately and they all say the exact same things which are girl take those pills they are good pills I am on them today they are amazing take them they say breastfeeding fuck it stop doing it if it isn't working stop it there's a reason wet nurses used to be a thing okay like formula is amazing give them formula go the fuck to sleep stop it um they say like yeah you know we all think about murdering our kid at least once it's called being a parent um that's basically it like you're not a parent until you did that and they all say yeah um what you're doing right now is it feels impossible because it is impossible it is and um, the thing is though we know you're gonna be able to do it because one day couple weeks from now your kid will sleep through the night he will and you're gonna go to get him in the morning and he's gonna look at you he's gonna open up his arms and he's gonna smile when he sees you and you're actually gonna forget how bad it is right now like you're gonna struggle to remember this time of deep dark endless loneliness because it ends and then you're gonna be on the other side with us 
And that's exactly what happened. And I don't know when or how I took the pills. I stopped breastfeeding and slowly, day by day, it got better. And now my son is four years old and I'm pregnant with my second child. And, um, And being pregnant again, I know that when I have this baby, first off, fuck, like, epidural, yes, right now, please. Um, Formula, mm mm-hmm, yeah, I'll have it in the house. We're just going to do whatever needs to happen. But also, I know that the fog might come back. But if it comes back, this time it's going to be different because I know this time in my bones that I am not alone. Thank you. My relationship with Lori began with a headbutt. I'm not one of those guys that you tickle. I, I respond in a very violent and involuntary way. So whenever I was in my dorm room in college, Lori being the joker that she is, she decided to sneak up behind me and shove her fingers underneath my armpits. And I snapped my head back. And whenever I did, I hit her in the head and she got knocked out. So I was terrified. But Lori is one of, those, uh, one of those people, she's hilarious, very funny. So we're sitting in the, in the nurse's office, the nurse was gone for 30 minutes, so obviously she's trying to piece the things together, and we're watching her through the window, and she's imitating what she's saying. Like, she's just trying to, I can't even do it justice, she was so funny. If she could see me right now, being a tall, lanky guy with dreads, she would say that I look like Slenderman and Whoopi Goldberg fucked. Like, that's <laughs> what she would say. She would, wear her, uh, she would wear her socks all the way up. Um, she would wear her, her shorts above her belly button and she would tuck in her shirt. She was so dorky. She looked like a, a, a zookeeper like, that other zookeepers would shove into a locker. It was just, it, it wasn't. But she would do that to downplay her beautifulness. She was incredibly beautiful. And she hated to be the center of attention. So that really attracted me. I needed to date her. So one day we're walking, actually a week after our heads collided, I um, took her on a walk and we were walking past the PNC Park and Stadium and um, I had to say something. So I said, hey, would you like to go out with me? And immediately she kissed me. And on the dot, fireworks went off and she wheeled back and she punched me in the arm and she said, I planned this. And I said, no, I definitely don't have the money or the budget to do that. It's making sense. And also, it didn't make any sense that there was no game, there was no event, so also we didn't know what was, what was going on, so it seemed like the universe was saying that we're perfect together. About uh, three months after we were dating, um, I was moving out of the dorm room and I was going to be leaving, um, living on my own with other uh, friends that I had in college, and it was going to be a big deal because I was going to be paying you know, rent and things like that. And, um, Everybody came out to, you know, support and help me move, and 
my parents also. So that meant that Lori had to meet my parents. So she was very nervous. And out of respect for Lori and my mother, I said that Lori was white. And I knew that my, my mother would lecture me not about the fact that she was white. She didn't mind about that. But she, what she was going to lecture me about was that society wasn't ready for that. And that there was some dangers behind that. But I didn't believe that I was going to have that. So it was okay. Still, my mother insisted. So whenever we had a caravan of cars packed up, my mother leaned her car back like Denzel Washington in training day and <laughs> told Lori to jump in. Hey, come on, rookie, strap in. Let's go. She was going to give her the same lecture. So as we were driving, I looked in my roving mirror and I just saw my mother's car just do a random turn and I just got a whole bunch of texts like, I'm going to die. Like that was... <laughs> About a few hours later, they come into my house with a whole bunch of groceries, laughing like they're best friends, and like they just cleaned up, like fucked up a clearance sale. Like it just, they were best friends. And they had like, they had uh, inside jokes, they had like trading tips on how to fatten me up because I'm skinny, and it didn't, it was embarrassing. But also heartwarming because two of my favorite women in the world are laughing. I experienced happiness for the first time. And with that happiness, we started to plan what was gonna happen after college. I was studying film, and I'm also still in film, so spoiler alert. Um, but film isn't necessarily something that you raise a family on because you're waiting for the next check. You don't know whenever your client's gonna pay you back. So I started to think about, maybe I should go to college again to get a better job so I could raise our family. And that wasn't a sacrifice, that was, I was willing to do that. About a year and a half in of dating, she finally says, hey, I would like you to meet my parents. And she said where her parents are from, which is Deer Lakes. And Deer Lakes doesn't sound like some place that black people really go to. Um, it sounds like white people shoot a deer in the back of the head and tie cinder blocks to the legs and drop them to the bottom of the lake. That's what, that's what that sounded like. So my natural reaction is, do they know? And this is way before Get Out. So <laughs> she didn't understand what that meant. And it just became an Abbott and Costello routine. It was like, who? What are you talking about? What's going on? And I would say, do they know if I'm black? And she immediately responded, well, my mother likes watching BET. And I was like, that's not funny. <laughs> bad context. Um, but she immediately said, I'm joking, no, it's fine. Like, it's very important that you meet my parents, and I, if it's important to her, then it's important to me. So my nervousness in being sure about this was going back and forth like a pinball. As I was driving through Deer Lakes, it's actually really beautiful. Like, the sun would break through the trees, and I could smell bonfire in the distance, and it would kind of calm me a little bit. But then I pulled into the neighborhood, and I right across the street from her parents is this black statue of this bellhop holding a lantern. And, and he had uh, his, the, the skin on it was kind of chipping away, so it looked like he had vinilago. So um, I was planning on kicking it over on the way out. Um, but I got to the door, and I knock at the door, and uh, I can hear laughter. I can hear happiness, I can hear music, I can hear sounds of, of cooking. And I was like, okay, that's happiness. I want to be a part of this happiness. I can't wait to be a part of this. But whenever the mother saw me, it was like opening up an emergency door on an airplane. 
All of that happiness, all of that music, all of that singing was sucked out. The only sounds that was being heard in the room was the scrapes of the forks against the plates, and every now and then I would say, hey, this is good, and Lori's mother would say, thank you. But I noticed that she wasn't eating. She's looking at me like a stain. And out of nowhere, she exploded, and she stood up, and she said, I'm never going to eat again until you stop dating this nigger. It took me moving out into the suburbs to experience death. My senior year, I was actually a really good kid. I never even smelled a cigarette. I never even drank beer. But it was my graduation, and my best friend insisted that I go out to this party that was out in Oakdale, PA, which was a place that black people really don't go to. It's, seriously, it's not for us. But I, I, I went. And whenever I went, there was some KKK members around, but I knew them because I went to high school with them, so they said, okay, this nigger's fine. <laughs> One wasn't okay with that. So he went out to his pickup truck, and he took a shotgun, and he shoved it into my mouth. And as that nuzzle scraped against the top of my mouth, he told me to beg for my life. I had to recover from that. It took me dating interracially to have a thought of suicide. I don't remember getting from leaving that table. I don't remember getting into my car. I don't remember kicking over the Levana Lago statue or anything like that. I just drove. And I remember that my mental brain was going, okay, I can't see anything. I have a lot of blur in my eyes because there's a lot of water in it. And if one tear drops, I've messed up. So I just kept on curling up my eyes to make sure it didn't drop. 70, 80, 90, I just kept on driving. I didn't give a fuck if I hit a guardrail, if I hit a deer, if a police stopped me. I kept on driving until I saw a welcome to Ohio. That's how numb I was. I realized I was running away from what her mother was saying. And I realized that also my phone is going off the hook. It's vibrating like crazy. And then suddenly all of the words start hitting me again. I now remember that she pointed at me, and whenever she pointed at me, it almost pierced me. I could feel her finger. And then I started to realize, and I started to remember what she was saying, the words that I was trying to run away from. She was saying that I, a college graduate, an honor student, was going to either abuse her daughter, raise children in a way that they would be drug addicts, or, or live in dirt. And I didn't defend myself, so therefore, that the fact that I didn't defend myself, it validated everything that she said. Whenever I got back, Lori insisted that we dated secretly because she loved me so much. And that whenever we graduate, we just head for the hills. We just find someplace where we're away from everything. But that's whenever the real shit started to happen. She started to become skinnier. Her trying to be positive... Her saying that, oh, I'm just losing weight because I'm working out. I knew that wasn't the case. It was because her Christian and all of her friends that have the biggest heart in the world, they claim, were shaming her because she was hiding from her racist parents that she was dating a black boy. About a month after that happened, 
summer approached and she said that there was a Christian camp that her parents wanted her to go to and it was going to be a good opportunity for her because she wanted to help the Christian community in Pittsburgh and it would be a networking thing and everything else. But I knew that that wasn't the case. It was actually her being isolated away from me. I'm not a possessive guy, but whenever your best friend stops texting you, stops calling you, stops talking to you, you start to feel something about that. It was a lot of radio silence. A month after that, she said, hey, come see me. It's in uh, New Jersey, right near the beach. It's a beautiful place. And I jumped at it. Whenever I arrived, it was, it was a beautiful place. The house that she was in was a mansion, and it was buzzing with all of these white faces that were very talented and very groomed for the next step in their life. And I was happy for them. But also, they were looking at me like, this mansion was a computer, and I was the virus. They started finding ways to try to drive home that subtly that we weren't meant to be together. Oh, you're artistic? Uh, Lori is business. How would that ever work? That made no sense. Who the fuck says something like that to somebody in a relationship in front of both of them? We were never allowed to be alone together, ever. They were always talking to us, always in the room, never letting us be alone. The last night that I was there, she texted me. She said, hey, meet me at the beach at 1030. So whenever I got there, she was there and she was smiling and we were playing around and we were dancing. And it was just like, it was just like we were dating again. We kissed again. I still have this picture that is so important to me because, but I, I, I can't bring myself to delete it, but I can't make, bring myself to look at it again. It was a picture of me and her sitting at the, at, on the sand. We're both smiling and there's a Ferris wheel in the background and so many colors. And as soon as that picture was taken, she broke down. She started to cry. She broke up with me on that beach. One month, two months, three months, all of my friends were like, when are you going to get over this? Every single time whenever I would try to get consoled, it would either be answered with, oh, well, I'm having trouble with my girlfriend or my Wi-Fi isn't working. That's how they would answer that shit. They would say, hey, just go to the club, get some girl, and just fuck her. Get over it. That's all I had. I dated somebody after that for two years, and um, all I could think about is Lori. All I could think about is the situation. I wasn't present, so that, that relationship ended badly. Immediately after that, I emailed her, and I didn't know what to say. I was just like, hey, I just want to know if you're okay. And that's it, just an email, not a text, not anything, just an email. She responded, I almost missed the email. She responded, I prayed to God and he answered my prayer because I wanted to know how you were doing, how about we meet? So we met at a Panera Bread and I sat down and I looked at her and she was the same, beautiful. But there was no jokes, there was no happiness, her favorite movie was Bridesmaids, and she would always quote Wendy Williams, how you doing? There was no how you doing. She was just a corpse. She looked at me like she didn't even know me. So as I tell this story, after avoiding these thoughts, after even thinking about her, 
I'm realizing that I'm actually mourning a death. I'm mourning the death of a best friend and a future that I had over some bullshit on racism. And this story isn't a story. This is a eulogy. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Curtis Mayfield behind me now. And we just heard from Ian McIntosh. You can find him on Twitter at iMacComedy. I'll tell you that story. That is a horror story. We have a long way to go. I just hope that as many people as possible hear these stories and as many people as possible share these stories. You know, uh, a big part of what we do at Risk is invite you, the listeners, to examine your life and think to yourself, hmm, do I have anything that I might want to share on the show? Uh, Have I lived through a really intense emotional experience or something that really surprised me that I found really illuminating? Have I been through... The sort of situation where I thought, God damn, what am I doing here? How do I deal with this? And of course, they can be funny, too. (laughs) They can be outrageously, ridiculously hilarious. Uh, That's why I want everyone to be checking our submissions page to see where we're coming next, because there are so many places we're coming next, and we want you guys to be pitching your stories. Let me run by some of these, guys. Uh, On June 8th, we're coming to Tampa. And so the optional themes for story pitches that night are worst case scenario, intuition, and dreams. Then on June 9th, we're coming to Orlando. And the optional themes that night are brilliance, sacred, or corruption. Then on July 20th, we're in Somerville, in Boston, in the Boston area. The themes that night are deadly, or fake, or innocence. July 27th is San Francisco. The themes are what was I thinking, spiritual, or under the influence. August 3rd, we're in Detroit. The themes are crazy, the stranger, or animal. 
August 10th is Chicago. The themes are vulnerable, mean, or cover-ups. August 11th is Minneapolis. The themes are obsession, or dirty, or metamorphosis. August 17th, Baltimore. The themes are rabbit holes, me against nature, or pride. August 18th, Washington, D.C. The themes are power, or barbaric, or opposites. September 6th, Portland, Oregon. The themes are at my worst, lies, or ecstasy. September 7th, Seattle. The themes are the worst, or glorious, or breakdown. September 8th, Vancouver. The themes are spectacle, the rules, or full volume. Now let that go for now. But listen, you can go to the submissions page. That's risk-show.com slash submissions. There's videos to watch there. There's an audio lecture there to help you put your pitch and story together. So start thinking about it and pitch us your stories at pitches at risk-show.com. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from Jamie Fadden Cannon, who is uh, one of the hosts of the show We Are the Weirdos, (laughs) stories told by women. And that's right there in the Pittsburgh area. Here she is now. This is Jamie Fadden Cannon with a story we call Blood on the Tracks. So it's 2005. I am standing side stage at a rock concert for one of my favorite bands. The air is electric and it's, you know, pumping. I can feel the bass in my chest and it is just awesome. And I turn to my left and I see this man in this ridiculous outfit. And when I say ridiculous outfit, I mean a thong. And it's a tall man, he's in this thong, and uh, he's got painted on abs and a rubber mask, and you can see kind of his mouth. And I just kind of look over like, okay. Um, And he kind of gives me a smile and then just bolts onto stage. He's part of this band, uh, not so much performing, but he was a roadie and part of the performance. So afterwards, we decide that we're gonna go backstage and um, participate in the shenanigans happening back there, which, to be totally honest, isn't that much. Some drugs, if they're old bands. Um, So I had acquired these backstage passes from a friend. So I'm like, I'm gonna do the rock star thing. So I'm there with my boyfriend, and we go back there, and I look over, and there's a little bar in the corner. I'm like, I'm just gonna sneak over here and steal this, because drinks are expensive at venues. So I'm pouring this bottle of Jägermeister, And who drinks a glass of Jägermeister? I don't know, but I just kept pouring. And I hear this gentle voice behind me, and he goes, hey, Greedy, you gonna share some of that with me? And I turn, and that's that weird man. However, he's wearing clothes this time. And I turn to him in this awkward way and just go, you look much different with clothes on. Which he did. Uh, He was cleaned up. And he kind of just turns and he goes, I'm Ben, what's your name? And I was like, 
Jamie. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> and he takes this bottle of Jägermeister and he holds it to his side and he goes, this could be our Jägermeister. And I said, I like that, let's go sit down. Keep in mind, my boyfriend is in the room at the time. So me and Ben share this bottle of Jägermeister and we're having a great night and just chit-chatting back and forth. And I was just enamored with this man. He was so cool. I mean, what a great life on the road. And I'm 18 at this time with not much going on. And I was just sucked in. I wanted that life. I don't know how I was gonna get it, but I wanted it. So the show came to an end and we said goodbye. And on the drive home, we were driving back to Portland, Maine where I lived at the time. My boyfriend and I didn't really talk to each other. And I remember I was staring out the window of the car just in a daze, just thinking, like, replaying these, the parts of the night in my head, like some kind of weird, lame 80s movie montage of just, like, the look, the smile, the drink. You know what I'm talking about? So I'm, I'm just going through. And then it kind of takes, like, a sad turn. And I start to quietly sob to myself because, to be quite honest... I hate my fucking life right now. I was in a relationship with this boyfriend in high school. That's where we met, and we moved to Portland, Maine, directly out of high school. I started going to college for video. I had an apartment, and I was fucking bored. It was just the mundane, the same thing in and out, and I was like, this is, this is not for me. Also, I hate video, so well, I don't know why I'm going to college for it. Um, I just needed more out of life. So when we got back to Portland, I finally called it quits with my boyfriend. I packed up all my stuff and I moved back home to New Hampshire with my parents. And when I got there, I had no direction. It is now 2006, I'm 19 years old, and I have no idea what I'm gonna do. So that summer, that band that I saw that I was previously talking about was coming back. So I went, and now I had friends in this band, so I got backstage passes, and I encountered Ben again. And I remember when I first saw him, I walked up and he embraced me in this big hug and it felt so safe and warm. And I just remember thinking like, are we old friends? I've only hung out with you once. But it just seemed so familiar and so nice. So after that day, Ben and I talked every day via text, whether it was phone calls late night, playing old records to each other or leaving weird, bizarre inside jokes on each other's MySpace. It was 2006. <laughs> so, one day, as the new year is approaching, it's about to be 2007. Again, I'm still no idea what I'm doing with my fucking life. Ben says, hey, Jamie, I'm going to throw this out here, and we'll see what you say. I live in Toledo, Ohio, and I'm not on the road. I'm a tattoo artist. What if you were to move to Toledo with me? I would teach you how to tattoo, and we could actually be together in a real relationship. And uh, again, not having anything going on with my life, I accepted. I thought that was a great idea. So in the winter of 2007, I packed up my little Hyundai Elantra with all my shit, which wasn't much, and I made the 17-hour trek from New Durham, New Hampshire to Toledo, Ohio. And I remember I was driving through upstate New York, and it's a snowstorm. And it was kind of like time slowed down a little bit. I'm white-knuckling the steering wheel because I have horrendous anxiety. I remember the snowflakes are hitting the windshield in like almost like this grainy TV type of way. And I just have this moment where I go, what am I doing? I'm driving halfway across the country to become a tattoo artist. Wasn't on my radar before. 
and to be in a relationship with a 42-year-old man. Ben was 42. And this is something that I hadn't revealed to my friends or family. And I just thought, well, hopefully it works out, and then I'll just figure that part out later, and it'll be fine. So I get to Toledo, and I am raring and ready to go. I want to start this tattooing job. I want to explore this new city. I want this life experience. I want this for me. But two months had passed, and I hadn't tattooed anyone. I hadn't learned much about tattooing. I hadn't gone to the tattoo shop, explored the city, nothing. I barely left the house. I didn't realize how isolated I had actually become. And one day I said to Ben, hey, I really just want to go explore the city. Like, we have MapQuest. I mean, we'll figure it out. And he, he gets nervous and says, you know, I, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't have a car and I don't want to have to go look for you. So in my 20-year-old mind, I just thought he was concerned for me. There was no real red flag there. So one day, I, on the rare occasion that I did, went to the tattoo shop. And there was a girl there that Ben was not very fond of. And she approached me and she said, hey, Jamie, so me and a couple girls are going to Ann Arbor, Michigan for the day. You don't get out very much. You should come up, check it out. It's a lot of fun. And craving some kind of human interaction, I accepted. So, and I was going to go. So when I told Ben, he was furious with me. And it came out of nowhere. And he would say things like, why do you want to go with her? She sucks, she's fat. I'm like, what does her weight have to do with anything? Okay, because I want to do something fun. And then it would turn into, you know she's a bad driver, right? Well, I hope you don't crash and end up in a ditch and walked away. Okay. Well, fuck it, I went. And I had like all this excitement, ready to go to Ann Arbor. I've never been there, I wanted to explore. But on the way there, something started happening and my phone started blowing up. And every two seconds, ding, ding, ding. What the fuck is this? So I look at the text message and they weren't angry, they weren't vicious. It just wouldn't stop. He wouldn't let me enjoy my time. So I look and like the first one says, well, what time do you think you'll be home? I don't respond. The next one, are you dead in a ditch somewhere? I don't respond. The next one, are you ignoring me? I respond, no. <laughs> the next one, don't bother coming home. Okay. So I go to Ann Arbor and I want to have this good time and I am determined, but then time was overshadowed by my phone, just dinging constantly. It was relentless, over and over, ding, ding, ding. Maybe I'll put it on silent, ding. What if there's an emergency, ding, and on and on and on. I remember this horrible feeling deep in my gut and it was like I had swallowed a bag of gravel and it was just sitting there. The anxiety completely took over and I knew something was wrong. So when I got back to Toledo, I was gonna approach him about it and tell him how uncomfortable it had made me and how this wasn't okay. But when I walked in, I was greeted with a warm hug. That similar hug that I was met with in 2006, the first time I saw him, that hug that made me feel safe. And I crumbled. He was just concerned for me. It's fine. And we went on. So as the summer was approaching, 
Ben says, hey, we should have a fire. We'll have some friends over. We'll have some drinks. It'll be a good time. And of course, I said yes, because I've been in this isolated kind of prison for a little while. So we have two friends come over, and it's the break of summer. And it's one of those nights that isn't too hot, isn't too cool. You can taste the air and smell the moss, and it was perfect for a campfire. So we have some drinks, and we're sitting around the fire, and we are belting out Danzig to the point that the dogs up the street started barking. And then I look over at Ben, and he shoots me this glare. And he didn't have to say anything, but I knew what he was saying. Tone it the fuck down. So I nodded and just kind of went back to not singing, sipping my beer. And the next noise I hear is my friend Dave, and he's in a cooler, and he goes, oh, shit, we're out of beer. Well, that's a problem. So Dave and Beth leave, and they say, we'll be back in 20. We're going to go get more beer, and Ben and I are left alone. And as Ben is poking the fire, he sits there and he goes, you know, you should really consider toning it down a little bit, considering you're underage and drunk. You don't want to draw attention. And I don't know what it was in me at that night, probably the alcohol, because that's usually how it works, but I fucking snapped. And I lost it. And we escalated into a massive blowout fight. And... I remember between, I used to smoke cigarettes and Ben hated that I smoked, and between bellows of smoke, puffed out and just said, leave me the fuck alone, Ben, please. I just need a moment. (sighs) And he kept pushing and jabbing, and I just needed to get away. And in our backyard, beyond the tree line, there were a set of train tracks. And it was, like I said, a really beautiful night, and it was well lit because it was a full moon. So I thought to myself, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. Flick my cigarette. I'm gonna go take a walk down those train tracks. I'm gonna cool off, I'm gonna sober up, and when I get back, we'll solve this before our friends get home, and we'll still have a really good night. So that's what I do. And I'm walking down these train tracks, and it's really hard, again, not to notice how beautiful of a night it was. And I'm trying to be a little aware of my surroundings. And I'm walking on these train tracks, And I'm careful to step on each plank and not in between. And I could taste that air and I could smell the earthiness and hear the crickets buzzing as I'm trying to stifle sobs because I still want to have a good time. And then I have a thought and I just kind of get lost in my head for a second and I think, what the fuck am I doing? Where am I right now? You know something's wrong, but you're ignoring your gut. And in that moment, I just wanted my mom. I missed her so much. (laughs) And before I could have another thought, I feel a jolt at the back of my neck. And in one swift move, I am yanked to the ground by my hair and started being pulled down the train tracks. And I can't see anything anymore, but I can smell that moss. Thump, thump, thump down these train tracks. And I can't hear anything, but I know I'm screaming. Thump, thump, thump down these train tracks. And I'm thinking, what the hell is going on? Who is this? Where am I? What kind of Lifetime movie am I in? When I realize that I know this person, it's Ben. Ben has me in his grasp, and he is pulling me by my hair down the train tracks. Thump. Thump, thump. And I'm thinking to myself, how long are these train tracks? Where is the fucking grass? When will it end? Thump, thump, thump. 
when it does. And I stand up and I'm shaking and I'm trying to rationalize what, is, what has just happened. And Ben, kind of standing over me with fury, goes, why the fuck did you make me do that? I don't know. I'm sorry. I, I don't know. I don't know. If you want to act like a child, I will treat you like a child. So in this moment, I panic, and I can see the porch light to our stairs, and I bolt. I sprint as fast as I fucking can for those stairs. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know when I'm going to stop. And I can hear Ben behind me yelling. I don't know what he's saying. But for some reason, when I get to those stairs, I stop. And I turn around, and Ben is there. And so casually, he just looks at me and goes, what are you going to do? Call the cops? You're underage and drunk. He's not wrong. (laughs) Okay. I just want to have a good time. I am drunk. So I gather myself for a minute. He doesn't say much more. And I go into the house. And when I get into the bathroom, the person I see in the mirror isn't someone I recognize. My hair is disheveled. My eyes are red from crying. My mascara is now run down into the cracks of my mouth. I'm hollow. I don't know who I am. So I turn on the water, and I wash my face, and I clean up, and I go into the bedroom, and I change my clothes. And when my friends get back from the store, I don't say a word. I was too embarrassed. How could I tell my friends that someone that I loved and was supposed to love me could do something like that? It was excruciating at the thought. I'd like to say after that night that I left him and I never endured abuse like that again. But the relationship went on for another almost two years. Ben and I moved out of the house and we traveled the US and we had highs and lows. I can't say that all of it was miserable. That's the thing about abusers. They trick you. (laughs) It's fun sometimes and that's what makes it so difficult to leave. And in 2008, we landed in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And we decided we were gonna stay here and we're gonna live here together. And I was finally able to get a job. And through that job, I met some pretty amazing friends. Now, I don't know what my exact breaking point was. It could have been I got tired of the manipulation, I got tired of being controlled, But I think, to be totally honest, it was those friends that I made here. They helped me find this newfound confidence in myself. And that gave me the courage one day. I sat up in bed, the bed that I shared with him, and I decided I was leaving him that day. And I did. I left Ben that day and I never looked back. And the thing is, You can have all the life experience in the world. There's so much unexpected. And there can be so many reasons you leave an abusive relationship. But I kind of like to think that Pittsburgh saved my life. Thank you.
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Orgone behind me now, and we just heard from Jamie Fadden Cannon. Don't forget to look her storytelling show up in Pittsburgh. That is called We Are the Weirdos. Don't forget to pre-order The Risk Book at theriskbook.com and join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash risk for lots of bonus stories, weekly check-ins, all kinds of prizes. It's all at patreon.com slash risk. Here is where Risk is appearing live next. May 17th, we're in Lawrence, Kansas. May 18th, St. Louis. May 19th, we're in LA at the Bootleg Theater. On May 24th, we're in New York at Caveat. On May 25th, Atlanta, June 8th, Tampa, Florida, June 9th, Orlando, July 20th in Somerville outside of Boston, July 27th, we're in San Francisco, July 28th will be a very special Los Angeles show because that will be the first time ever that I host the show out there in LA. So that's July 28th at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. On August 3rd, we are back in Detroit. On August 10th, Chicago, Illinois. August 11th, Minneapolis. August 17th, Baltimore. August 18th, Washington, D.C. September 6th, Portland. September 7th, Seattle. September 8th, Vancouver. So, folks, look, you can go to the submissions page at risk-show.com and pitch us your stories, or uh, you can just buy tickets and come out and see us. Now, Risk is only half of the business we run over here. The other half is at thestorystudio.org. That's where we teach storytelling to people who want to get up on stage on shows like Risk or for people who want to improve their communication skills in their careers around the workplace. Check out all that we have to offer in storytelling training at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Ordered the risk book. People who have ordered the risk book. There's Justin Purnell. There's Tatiana and Amber from Caveat. There's Christine MC. There's Anna Vaughn. Tyler Wood and Alex Sykes. Wise Feld, there's Shaheen Cap, 
When I am heaven. Stephanie Fisher! Stephanie Fisher! Elizabeth Wally Mateus Array! Marie Killen! Mickey Blake! And Catherine Thompson! There's Sam Coons! And Gwen Mickish and Jamie Martinez! There's Amy Soul! And Jan Wright and Theogenes Basilios! Or Diogeny Basilios! Brian Watson, Sarah Long, Hendershot, Frankie Bonfanti, Tyler Amundson, Samantha Richards, Maya Hansen, Eric Best, Pamela Boudreaux, and Daria Browner, Stephanie Proctor, Craig Ryer, Heather Reed, Jeff Barr, our Jeff Barr, Brian Clark, Christina Moo, and the whole Moo family. Mel Dockery, our Mel Dockery, Gary Levitt, our Gary Levitt, Amarish Baskaran, Amarish Baskaran, Amarish Baskaran, Elise Austin, and Fred Weber, and Beowulf Jones, our Beowulf Jones, and some sexy motherfucker called Brian Robles. <laughs>